0: A podcast
1: 1 production Hi, I'm Christopher Pine and welcome to Pine Time. For years I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions some would say abuse from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game. And I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before, as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the Pine Effect. Lindsay Fox is my guest. He is one of Australia's longest and best known billionaires. He's been on the AFR Rich List every year since it was created in 1984. He left school at 16. He was asked to leave, actually, because uh, he wasn't very academic. Bullshit. <laughs> and he kicked the football around a bit uh, for St Kilda. And uh, then he started his business with one truck in 1956. How would you get started? Where did you get the capital from to start a business?
0: I convinced uh, a man that owned a truck wrecking place in Richmond, E.V. Timms, to buy a 53 Ford truck off him for £400 on £100 each quarter. Right. He agreed, and some years uh, ago, he looked at me and said, I should have lent you the money and left that investment in you. (laughs) He certainly should have. Is he with, not still with us, I assume, Mr. Timms? Oh, long, long-term long dead, but his mm. uh, son still run the business. Today. Right.
1: So, 56, you got married to Paula at 59. Yeah. How many trucks did you have by 59? <sighs> well, well,
0: 56, I'd just come out of National Service at Bucca oh. I got married when I was 22. I would have had three trucks, I think. Well. At that particular time, parked in High Street Armadale on the street. Right. <laughs> no no yard to spark, park
1: them in and uh, progressed on from there. And how many do you have now? About 8,000. 8,000 trucks? Yeah. Internationally or just in Oz? Internationally,
0: Australia would represent probably about 60% of them.
1: So you can't park 8,000 trucks in the High Street of Armadale now? <laughs> no, no. Well, uh,
0: we probably have... Around Australia, 100 major depots of up to 20, 30, 40 acres where we park the truck.
1: So it's it's the biggest logistics and transport business in Australia. It's uh,
0: certainly at the top of the tree. We have a customer base that companies like Coles and Woolworths have been with us for over 50 years. Dunlop have been with us for over 50 years. And uh, it's sort of grown and developed through our work performance with these particular companies. And today we're in a company called Armaguard that does 75% of all the cash pickup and deliveries throughout uh, Australia. And we're in every facet of uh, transportation
1: today. Yeah, and you wouldn't change a thing? You'd still start a transport business if you were starting a business today?
0: How do you make a small fortune?
1: (laughs) Start with a big
0: one? That's correct. <laughs> so the joys of uh, being a working class family, living in a little 15-foot frontage house in Stuart Street, Windsor, where the parents were always caring and sharing. And if somebody uh, arrived on the weekend, Saturday or Sunday around lunchtime, they'd always be asked to sit down and join the family at lunch. And we've carried those traditions on from our early beginnings in in life and it's interesting to see my grandchildren do exactly the same thing without being told.
1: Well, they've learnt from your example, you and Paula. Well, I I think
0: the aspect of a a long-term marriage and uh, last week we had 60 years of being married. Congratulations. She was, uh, she had to be 21 before she got married. I was 22. We had six kids in seven years. She was a good Catholic and <laughs> I was a careless a,
1: Protestant. He should have bought a television.
0: Well, they'd just come out in 56, the time of the Olympics, <laughs> but we'd never had one in our bedroom. That's right. <laughs> well,
1: because meals in the uh, Fox household are not what everybody would expect. You know, the, I mean, when I've been to your house for dinner, you and Paula, we sit in the kitchen yeah. and we have dinner together, the three of us. It's very, I mean, it's a beautiful house and yet it's ve- you're very unaffected by your wealth.
0: Money is only a byproduct of job satisfaction. You can't get any more satisfaction than I've had out of my 82 and a half years on this earth. Everything I've been involved in, with the exception of St Kilda Football Club winning a premiership, <laughs> has been quite successful. Business has been good, commitments to the community uh, going on all the time, particularly with my wife. yeah And uh, there's so much satisfaction. You give without expecting anything in return. If you give looking for something in return, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And not going to get satisfied either. You get no satisfaction for trying to buy your position in life. You get it by not telling anybody what you do and having the satisfaction of you knowing what you've done.
1: St Kilda, you were the president for a little while.
0: I was president of St Kilda for six years. I played at St Kilda from, Who I was captain of the under-19s in 55, 56, went to Ballarat in 57 in the Ballarat League and came back in 58, 59, 60 and played my last game in 61. One year, I think about 1960, I got a Brownlow medal boat and they dropped me. I asked
1: the coach why. He said that wasn't your job. <laughs> why did you say it was bullshit that you were asked to leave uh, Melbourne High School? Nah,
0: if you speak to the school, you'll find that that's something that's gone on for quite a long time. I um, had the joy of my form master, a man called Wilbur Cortis, mm-hmm. Wilbur went on and became the economics master at Scotch and he'd come home and after he tutored my children, he'd stay on for dinner and one of my smart ass young sons looked across and said, Wilbur, what sort of a student was Dad? I said to myself, the shit's going to hit the fan now. (laughs) And then he said, your father was an excellent student. The biggest issue was the teachers didn't know what to teach him. And if I look back on that, the subjects that I was interested in, like economics or maths, it was always 80% plus, English, geography, history, anywhere between probably the 60s and 70s, Latin, algebra, geometry, single-digit numbers. (laughs) Is that right? No application (laughs) for them. But the things that I was interested in, I excelled at. Right. And the aspect of going to school, I was in the second form at Turek Central for two years. I went to Melbourne High School. I was in the third form for a year. And I went halfway through the next year. And I said, well, academia is not for me.
1: Well, you had nothing wrong with your memory, Lindsay. No, so
0: I (laughs) left. And I was very fortunate that I was an academic failure.
1: <laughs> Why is that? Because you got
0: on to do this no, I got starts. on doing things and yeah. getting job satisfaction out of what I was doing. And all the things that relate to the fellow students at Melbourne High School that have become outstanding academics, they'd swap places with me tomorrow.
1: They would do other they swap would places? They would swap places oh, yes. with me tomorrow. Well, I think a lot of people would. Well,
0: my education was practical experience and working with people, making commitments, fulfilling them and being outcome driven. And you would have been on the road a lot. Yeah, I have i guess even today I go around the world six or eight times a year and I, I could say I've been doing that probably since the early 60s.
1: Well, you've had some wonderful um, trips and some wonderful parties over the years. I remember we um, had, was it your 75th with Bert Bacharach?
0: Yeah, Bert Bacharach was at the 75th. The 70th was uh, Hugh Jackman. Oh, right. James Morrison has always performed. My 80th birthday, I chartered a ship from uh, Athens to Venice, took 450 people, and the average period of time that I knew all the guys was 42 years. Um, Last weekend... I took uh, 12 of my former schoolmates from Melbourne High School up to Masson for lunch.
1: They're still alive. They're
0: still alive. <laughs> and this qualification was they had to be Melbourne High School the same time as we were, and they mm. had to be over 80. Wow. Well, it was fantastic recalling the times at school, the teachers, the things that we did at that particular era of our lives. Mm. And when you get older you get to a stage of renewing lots of the old friends. The old friends are the gold ones, particularly oh. the ones from school. And it, it was just a magical day.
1: you just take up where you left off. We did. Mm. We did. Mm. So what was Australia like in 56? Do you, do you think it's better today than it was back then? I mean, it's obviously very changed. It's very different. But is it is it no, better I, because look, of what's happened?
0: I'm afraid Australia's a, a creature of... Or the people are creatures of habit. And we do the same things over and over again. We make the same mistakes and duplicate them. And very rarely do we use something about changing those things. Quite often, uh, I go to work and follow the same route to get to where I'm going. But in the last three, four or five years, there's been a new way to go and I'd get there quicker. But because I went the other way,
1: You still do it. I
0: keep on doing it. (laughs) While I haven't got much hair on my head, I still go to the same barber. I still go to the same dentist. I still buy the shirts at the same place. I buy the shoes at the same place, my pants, the socks. That is a creature of habit, not a necessity. But I guess you become accustomed to doing what you do. And if uh, they do the right thing by you all the time, you keep on going back. I've got a sign on my door. Uh, in the office, and it says, if we don't look after our customers, someone else will. <laughs> and I tell my executives the same thing is applicable to their wife.
1: <laughs> I must love that.
0: I think they're all conscious of it. And I think it's a very important thing to, to have a friend. You must be a friend. Mm. You can't ring up when you want something and expect people to respond. People will respond if there is a relationship between the two Quite often we get caught up so often with people talking that networking, you know, you're a good networker. Mm. I say rubbish with networking. The real key is friendship. Mm. And uh, networking is something you can buy every day of the week. Friendship, you've got to earn it. And I've been very strong on that all my
1: life. One of the early days that I got to know you was over the um, centenary of the First World War and the work you did on that to uh, mark the hundred years since things the like The celebration. That the celebration, exactly. Well, the,
0: the government uh, put a committee of 30 people together and all they did was spin their wheels. Uh, I, Angus, I remember you were a
1: bit annoyed about all that, actually.
0: Uh, Angus Houston uh, became involved um, And I took the responsibility of doing the job. I raised $230 million. Gosh. I got 10 million off the banks, I got 10 million off the miners, I got a million off the top 20 people that were the wealthy people in our community. And it it just started to come in all the time. But these people were not getting anything in return. They were looking to say thank you for most of the people that they were celebrating. We're a long
1: time dead. Sure. Did you have family in the first war?
0: Grandfather. i got a photo of him
1: in my office. Ah. Yeah, I had two great-uncles killed in the first war. Most Australians, of course, who've been around for a few generations, most of them have been touched by the wars. My dad was in Korea. He was a medical captain in Korea. And um, because I was the Minister for Defence, so it sort of runs through most families in Australia they have got an attachment to the military of some kind or other.
0: Well, we've got a terrific defence organisation. We do. And a a terrific amount of good people in all of the special services associated with defence. And we're very fortunate to have all of those people working for us as Australians.
1: And, well, I think part of the reason you were so active on the 100-year anniversary was because uh, you wanted to make sure that the veteran's service was properly marked.
0: Well, it, it needed to be. The veterans have always had a battle of recognition and I, I spoke with the government and uh, the leaders of defence, with regard to having a special pin made, right, red for the army, blue for the uh, the air, yeah, and for the navy, right. In, in a similar f- banner to uh, an AO or an AC or an
1: AM for the veterans to wear, yes, to indicate their service. Did that that didn't come about, I don't think, did it?
0: Well, I offered to pay fifty percent. They haven't <laughs> heard any more. <laughs>
1: Have you been to the Villa Breton uh, um, Memorial and the new museum that uh, we built there?
0: No, I've been to the the big one in Canberra. Yes. All the people that gave me $10 million, I took to Gallipoli for the centenary. Right. And that was
1: very moving. Mm, I've been to Gallipoli. Uh, I found my um, uncle's grave. Just by mistake, actually. It's funny. I was... uh, I took my family there in 2016 and we, um, just as a private trip and uh, I didn't bother to let anybody know that I was coming. So um, when I got, we went there with the guide and he's, and I said actually my great uncle Patrick was killed here and he said, oh, well, you should let us know, we would have found the grave and the grave sites because there's 61 apparently mm. cemeteries. And I said, oh, well, he was killed on the first day and we were standing at Beach Cemetery. Yep. And he said, oh, this was the first cemetery where they put anyone on the, who came early and got killed early. And I said, oh, well, I might have a look around. So I sent my four children and my wife in different directions say, have a look for Patrick. And I walked about three metres and I looked down and there was his gravesite.
0: I was fortunate at Melbourne High School where the principal was a man called Brigadier George Fern Langley. no. Well. And he was a great historian of the First World War. But he, he set an example right through the school. And one of the things I remember clearly clearly, was his, uh, his story about if better is possible, good is not enough. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. And I've
0: carried that with me all my life.
1: Well, I do think we treat the veterans a lot better today than we did 20, 30 years ago, even 10 years ago. Scott Morrison's been, you know, he, he acknowledges the veterans a lot in his speeches.
0: I, I think Scott Morrison uh, has come in like a breath of fresh air. It's good to see somebody stand up and make things happen. We're very fortunate uh, in Victoria with our current Premier. Mm-hmm. I've never come across anybody that sort of assimilates himself with the whole crowd without big noting himself as a politician. I've seen him at functions where he's just another one of the people there. But what he is doing throughout Victoria, uh, it's a shame the feds don't have a look at some of those things and work out how they can work in partnership. And one of the things that we really lack today, a successful family, there's a bipartisanship between the man and the woman and the kids involved. (laughs) The day Labor can talk to Liberal on the basis of is it in the interest of Australia or is it in the interest of the political party? When they come up with, if it's in the interest of Australia, that should override the commitment that they've got to make within the political party. That One of the great stories out of America was uh, Tip O'Neill, who was the yeah. Speaker of the House. Took over John Kennedy's Congress seat. Okay. And uh, Tip O'Neill, at the conclusion of the day, out a, a fighting And Ronald Reagan was the president at the time. They'd have an argument all day and they'd get nowhere. He'd go then to the the door of the president's office. Mr. President, is the bar open? (laughs) Come in. So they'd go in, they'd drink a bottle of scotch and all the things that weren't resolved in the house, they resolved over a bottle of scotch whiskey. Now, I don't know how long it is, since we've had the leaders of the two major political parties that have been able to do that in the interests of Australia rather than the interests of the Labor or the Liberal or the Greens or these small little parties that seem to be screwing up our system.
1: I usually get, just have to agree in the end of the day. Now, well, there's
0: no, <laughs> there's no purpose in conflict. Mm. And there's, there's no better example than your mother and your father resolving their issues so that it doesn't affect the children. And there's no reason why the politicians can't do exactly the same thing, to do a value to the constituents that have supported them into their role as members of the political leadership of Australia.
1: The last 10 years have probably been um, pretty bad from that point of view. It's been a very aggressive period, hasn't it?
0: You're being conservative with pretty bad. (laughs) <laughs> it's been a disgrace. Okay, it's me. been an absolute disgrace. The behaviour in the Parliament House over the last two decades has been appalling. It's like not behaving properly in church, and I think there should be the same sort of respect in the Parliament House rather than stupid little men screaming and yelling at one another across the floor. If they're serious, they should tap the fellow on the shoulder Say I want to see you outside, <laughs> and either go bare knuckled or put him in a in a
1: boxing ring and let him have a fight. And what do you put that down to in the last twenty years? Because the hawk during the Hawke Keating period, the coalition was quite supportive of, a of of a lot of their policies. You might remember Howard voted for a lot of their uh, policies to get through the Senate. But these days, you know, it's very the, the upper house makes it very difficult for governments.
0: Well, once again, you go through stages. As a kid,
1: social media. No, mm.
0: well, the Catholics walked on one side of the street, the mm. Protestants on the other, and my father said, "You marry that Catholic girl, and I won't come to the wedding."
1: God, really? Did he come?
0: No, he died. Oh. <laughs> But he would have come.
1: (laughs) That's because God's uh, a Catholic. This this was the stupidity.
0: (laughs) Today, Catholics and Protestants doesn't really make any difference. No, it doesn't. If you want to go to church, you should be able to go to either one of the churches and feel very comfortable in the the, the sanctuary of a church where it's peace
1: and goodwill. You once said... um on this sort of issue, that, lib- that the Liberals think that I'm Labor, the Labor thinks I'm Liberal, the Catholics think I'm a Protestant and the Protestants think I'm a Catholic, but the the, the rabbi brings me matzies. That
0: Well, that's right. If you go to the Constitution, when we were looking to become a republic, that was part of my speech. Was it? I, oh. I, had, I spent three minutes in the house making my speech. Yeah, right, in the old House. Uh, that That's so true, though. I I am not politically supportive of any singular party. I'm supportive of people, people that I believe can go in and do what I do under a similar set of circumstances. And that's not being disloyal. That's doing the job that you were employed to do as a parliamentarian. You're there representing not a political party. You might be wearing their jumpers, Mm. but you're there to win the game. And in winning the game, you can only do that by looking after who you're responsible for. And it's not the political party.
1: It's Australia. I must admit, um, Anthony Albanese and I, of course, he was the leader of the House in that hideous 43rd Parliament where there was no majority. Yep. And I was the manager of opposition business. That so was my job to ruin his day, basically, <laughs> which I did with great enthusiasm. But we would routinely catch up. For a drink at the end of the week or the end of a night, because we could recognise that you could have you could play very hard on the on the field, but once the game was over, you know there were things to resolve and issues to discuss, and you had to keep the house moving because you know we could have shut down the place really, but you can't have a government that works that way.
0: Well, in the sixties and probably the fifties, league football at the end of a game, they all went to the bar. And had a beer. Mm. And if they got punched on the nose, they'd laugh about it while they were having a drink.
1: Yeah, I noticed with rugby, because my son Felix plays rugby, and I noticed the culture of the rugby is much more um, collegiate like that. So they will clap each other off the field at the end of the game. I mean, the, the boys still shake hands and the girls shake hands in the AFL and the, the women's AFL. But I think that's a very, I, I noticed it and I thought this is a really decent sort of thing to do, actually.
0: I'll give you a great example that you should look at next time you go to a grand final. Mm. The politicians and particularly the Prime Minister used to go on the ground Uh and congratulate the winners. Mm. The first one that ever goes onto the ground and looks after commiserating those that have got their head between their knees and crying will be seen as a great leader. Mm. They never go there.
1: I'll make sure Prime Minister listens to this podcast and then they'll know. (laughs) Uh, Oh, well, no, no.
0: Well, it's a good question. Ask him if when he was Prime Minister and he went on the ground of the Melbourne Cricket Ground, did he go over and talk to the losers? They're used to wanting to support the winners at a time
1: when you should commiserate with the losers. Well, you know, it's an interesting story because Jimmy Carter... Yep. He in the after the elections in '74 in the states, there were a whole lot of Democrats that had lost their Congress seats or their Senate seats or whatever it might have been, and he didn't write to the winners. He wrote to all the losers, and he said, "I might come through your town or your state, and would you mind if I dropped in and stayed with you?" And uh, they were so surprised to get anything from anybody because they'd lost, and he was the governor of Georgia that he spent the next two years travelling around doing just that and he won the nomination for President of the United States and got elected and he always put it down to the fact that he'd stepped on other people's couches or in their, you know, bedrooms and uh, um, he'd written to the losers and he'd hung out with the losers because he said there's a lot more losers than there are winners in any contest. Well, while you're
0: talking about Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter came out in 84 to Australia. Uh Right. And he stayed at my house. Is that right? And slept in my bedroom. Get out of town with him and Roz.
1: My goodness! And um, that's a coincidence because you didn't know. Any time that, that you
0: come to my office, you will see a letter from Carter thanking uh, me for him staying there. Right. And on the bottom, you'll see in handwritten note, "I'm still waiting for your letter." <laughs> so, I don't write letters.
1: <laughs> it's at the, You've had the personal Jimmy Carter touch.
0: Had a lot to do with Jimmy Carter. A good friend of mine designed his library. Right. His name was Krista Hemmeter. His
1: So, what was your connection to Jimmy Carter?
0: Well, Christopher Hemeter was my next door neighbor in Honolulu. Oh. And I contributed to the library. Right. Uh, Christopher designed it and helped fund and build it for him. I went to the inauguration of that uh, library. Carter was a lovely bloke. As his wife with, they used to say their prayers each night in Spanish.
1: Really? Hmm. Why?
0: I don't know. I never asked the question. <laughs> an unusual thing.
1: So, um, you've got six children.
0: Had six. One committed suicide. That's right, Michael. Uh, his uh, wife left him, and he wanted a happy family like his uh, his life. Right. And uh, she sort of called it a day. He went out and hung himself. It must have been devastating. Uh, it's one of those traumatic things, but mm. what it does is make you very conscious of your own children so that you you consider con- constantly looking after their well-being and you become so much aware of people that lose a child in mm. their family, whether it's suicide or an accident. Mm. And it's amazing that uh, I could probably give you 20 or 30 people that have lost one of their children one way or the other. Mm. And I encourage young people to have three kids. So if they lose one, that's that's a tragedy, but at least they've got two. Mm. If they've only got two kids and they lose one, they're petrified. They might lose the
1: last one. Yes, it's a great blessing for my mother that she's um, not outlived any of her children. She's got five children still alive and... She had five, so it's a great thing for her. But I must admit, I mean, that was early 90s when Michael died. But um, you probably think about it a lot still.
0: Yeah, it always comes up around his birthday, which is the 1st of July. Uh and. I, I guess we celebrate it because we can see some of the grandchildren that look yeah. very much like him.
1: Right. Is that right? Did, um, after that, did you get involved with mental health in Australia as, as one of your um, charitable pursuits? Well,
0: ever since then, we've had a fair bit to do with yes.
1: Right. Was it Beyond Blue or, Men- or Headspace? No, no.
0: Well, Jeff's done a marvellous job he has. Uh, in Beyond Blue. But, no, there are other organisations.
1: So it's not all bad up there, Lindsay. No,
0: I, I guess everybody's got their own personal issues mm. and all of the things they feel strong about mm. and other th- aspects that they've got no regard for whatsoever. Mm. And I don't think you can have two extremes in the political field. You've got to look at it with a clean sheet of paper.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly, I mean, we've been blessed. I think one of the reasons that we're so blessed in Australia politically with stable governments, not so much the last 10 years but most of the since the Federation, is because of um, compulsory voting and preferential voting. I think it means that, you know, you have a pretty, you're pretty certain that one side or the other is going to win and they tend to tack towards the centre. I mean, most extremes don't really get elected. I mean, you might get the odd One Nation or, the, or Greens, but that's almost all, 90% of it's going to be Liberal or Labor.
0: But you, a man can't live with his wife and his mother-in-law. <laughs> and in the case... <laughs> of two strong political parties and minorities influencing the decisions Mm. of the major uh, political parties, that's a disadvantage to the rest of the public. These days, uh, there's an issue at the moment in the House where they need the vote of one person. For the union legislation. And uh, you can't have a person that has the authority as one person to influence
1: a complete change in the, the program. It's a weird situation because Pauline Hanson in the speeches in the Senate, everything she said supported the government's legislation and I don't know why. And she said that when she voted, when she voted against it, she hadn't even told her staff. She went back to the office and said, oh, we just voted against the legislation. So it seems like a bit of a spur-of-the-moment decision and maybe it's got nothing to do with the legislation. It might be something else altogether that we'll find out eventually.
0: Well... With due respect to the politician, she's a wild card. She's a bit of a wild card. She's
1: quite charming, though. Have you hung out with Pauline ever? No, no, I. Uh... So I um I had to pursue her a bit, you know, when in the Howard government, well, obviously we threw her out because of her comments during the election. And one of my roles, of course, was to criticise other people a bit. And um, but you know, she's never in all our personal dealings with Pauline. My personal dealings with Pauline Hanson, she's been more than charming as though she doesn't know any of the things that I used to say about her in the chamber, which is nice, actually.
0: Well, Lambie's a, a dog fighter too. She's <laughs> she very – I like her. She is. I, I I think she's like a little terrier. And
1: she can be a bit grumpy, there's no doubt about that, when she well, doesn't get what she wants about something. I've been married
0: for 60 years and my wife gets grumpy every now and then. Oh, yes, and, uh, tell me about it.
1: So at, just going back to your 75th, because you talked about, you know, having friends – across the political divide, talked about Jimmy Carter, of course, as a Democrat. Um, I mean, I noticed at the 75th you had people like me there and Joe Hockey there, but you had Simon Crean there and Bill Kilty, uh, Jason Clare, I think, was there. Yeah. It wasn't like there was any sense that, you know, you could actually pick no, who you, Lindsay Fox supports.
0: <laughs> no, no, you were there as my friends. That's right. And as friends, if you don't like my friends, that's your prerogative. I'll accept that you might like some of my friends. Mm. However, in my company, at my table, you're either my friends or you'll never get an invitation again. (laughs) Bert
1: Backwack put on a great show.
0: He did, didn't he?
1: And I might have had a couple of too many champagnes, I think, because as he was leaving... I raced over to him and gave him a very warm embrace. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> My wife was terribly embarrassed and said, what do you think you're doing? I said, I've always loved Bert Bacharach. He's fantastic. Well, Bert, Bert
0: Backrack in his performance, nobody knew he was coming. No. And he came out and played for an hour and a half and everybody was as though they were in a church. They it loved was him. silent. It was so good. And the applause came because... They pictured themselves in a location somewhere in the world when each of those songs exactly. were played. Yes. And it, it was a very special moment.
1: It was. He's a little fellow too, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, a brilliant a brilliant pianist.
1: And a great group that was and, supporting and, him. Oh terrific. It was a wonderful, wonderful night, and I felt very privileged to get to see Bert Bacharach in live and in person, so it was a it was a great event. So what are you going to do for your 85th?
0: I'm working on that now.
1: <laughs> you don't think you better have an 83rd? No, well,
0: well, I, I have a, a good birthday every year. Wow. Uh, 81, I'm planning my 83rd now. Wow. The big one will be every five years, so it be, won't be till 85. Mm. But I'm looking at where I do that and how I do it'll that.
1: It'll be hard to top your cruise last time for your 80th.
0: That was very special. <laughs> very hard to top. That was very special. Um, and once again the silly thing about that was there would probably be a couple of politicians that I would have loved to have come, but they couldn't come. No, well
1: everyone's got so much on all the
0: time. No, 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 not that. This is back once again to corporate governance, the oh, same sort I of see. thing. Right. That if they're seen in an environment where you've got all the leaders of Australia no. and on the boat as as mm-hmm. an example there were probably 12 billionaires. There were probably another 12 millionaires. There were at least 12 with the arse out of their pants <laughs> and at least 12 <laughs> old footballers that were knockabout blokes. Wow. But I sat all of them alphabetically regardless right. of who they were. What a good idea. So all the A's were with the A's, the B's were the B's, and they sat down and they all had a ball. They would have. Nobody was concerned whether somebody had 100 Or a thousand, or ten thousand, or a hundred thousand Mm. in their pocket, they met people and took them as they were, because they were at the table celebrating a friend's birthday.
1: So, what do you think about President Trump?
0: I'd like to say the real word, but I think he's an F wit. (laughs) Well, that's very clear.
1: I think we can fill in the missing initials to the letters. Well, it's a four-letter word. (laughs) But I think he might win again. What do your friends in the States say?
0: Well, no, they they still think he'd probably get up. Mm. In Trump's case, I first met him when I was on the board of Continental Airlines. Oh, right. And at President Reagan's inauguration in Washington. He was at the table adjacent to me. And we sold him the first Trump shuttle. Right, okay. (laughs) And uh, look, look, the fella's got big balls. And accordingly, he's running the gauntlet. People will go for it and other people that have gone for convention find it way
1: out. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) thank you, Lindsay, for your time today. It's been good to catch up and have a chat. Very good of you. Thank you for joining
0: us. Well, lovely to join you and uh, it's always been good working with you, my
1: friend. Thank you, Lindsay. I appreciate it. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.